Um, it's wonderful to be with you all and to have Professor Scott Franks join us today. And very generously, despite being sick, he has um, joined us here over Zoom. And Professor Franks teaches at the Lincoln Alexander School of Law. And he researches and writes in areas including professionalism and ethics, criminal trial procedure, and Indigenous and Aboriginal law. And the distinction here between those being Indigenous laws, the laws of Indigenous peoples themselves, whereas Aboriginal laws looking at Canadian state law as it applies to Indigenous people. In 2015, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission published their final report. And in it, the commissioners issued various calls to action relevant to the legal profession. The report's emphasis on the importance of, as well as the extent of the work to be done in revitalizing Indigenous laws and reconciling uh, legal traditions, eventually inspired Professor Franks to leave practice and pursue his Master's of Law. He previously clerked uh, for the Supreme Court of Canada, and he was also a lawyer at Oltheus Clear Townsend, an Aboriginal rights uh, firm based out of Toronto. His LLM research investigated barriers and opportunities to implementing the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action in law schools specifically. So his presentations today are informed by that research, um, as well as his lived experiences as a law student, a lawyer, a law professor, and his citizenship as a member of the Manitoba Métis Federation and his background growing up in northern Saskatchewan. Um, so for further learning in relation to today's talk theme, Professor Frank LLM is available as well as he has a recent article published last year in the Mitchell Hamlin Law Review titled Some Reflections of a Métis Law Student and Assistant Professor on Indigenous Legal Education in Canada, which is a really insightful as well as um, uh, quite comprehensive piece in thinking about this from the lens of how do we bring these important themes into an institution that has historically been very oppressive towards uh, Indigenous people. So how do we do this type of reconciliatory work uh, despite our many different backgrounds? So we're happy to have you virtually, Scott, and we'll pass it over to you now. Thank you, Lindsay. Um, I'm also going to share my screen in a second. I want to mention that uh, Jamie Lavely, um, uh at uh, the University of Saskatchewan also has an article in the Mitchell Hamlin Law Review that was uh, with my article. And uh, Jamie's article is so good. Um, I think like absolutely should be read uh, and assigned to students as well. And I think it's pretty powerful about the experience that she had um, teaching her um course, setting things right at the University of Saskatchewan. So I think it'll be very of interest of anyone here and I recommend reading it. <clears throat> so, um, as Lindsay mentioned, I have spent, um, my focus was in my LLM on the TRC's uh, bears, the implementation of the TRC's calls to action. And the specific lens I took to that was an interdisciplinary lens looking at social psychology. The reason why I chose that was because Indigenous scholars, law students, lawyers, They've been writing about their experience of those barriers to reconciliation for quite some time, for over two decades, if not longer. And despite that, there's something dismissive about those experiences 
um, something that's dismissed about those experiences. And so the hope to take a social psychology and interdisciplinary social psychology view would be to, as a heuristic or as um, uh, a descriptive device, um, use it, what is seen as an authoritative Western model to create kind of a bit of a narrative about what exactly is the root of that resistance. And so in the course of doing that work, I looked at a lot of different pedagogies related to Indigenous legal education, which I'll define in a moment. Um, and I also looked at what other law schools are doing. And along the way, I came up with my own thinking about what it is exactly from a programmatic or institutional point of view we might be looking at when we're implementing Indigenous legal education in Canadian law schools. <clears throat> so are my slides displaying for all of you? Yes, they are. Perfect. Okay. So um, I'm going to be talking about the implementation of Indigenous legal education. I will define Indigenous legal education for all of you right now as uh, the integration of Indigenous legal issues, Indigenous perspectives, and Indigenous legal orders. And it'll become clear that when I talk about Indigenous legal issues, for the most part, I'm talking about the interaction between Canadian law and its um, interaction or imposition with Indigenous persons and Indigenous peoples. So under that category, Indigenous legal issues, that's where we talk about what would normally be defined as Aboriginal law, which is the law of the Canadian state that purports to apply to Indigenous persons and Indigenous peoples, which is generally understood as being Section 35 of the Constitution Act of 1982 and Section 9124 of the Constitution Act of 1867. But when I define Aboriginal law, I actually think about it more broadly um, than just the entry points for those constitutional um, provisions. So that I will go back to the definition as we proceed, uh, but that's just the preliminary start for us. So when we're thinking about implementing Indigenous legal education in Canadian law schools, right now we're motivated by calls to action 27, 28, 50. And 27 and 28 address the Federation of Law Societies and Canadian law schools to take up pretty much the same um, content. Call to action 50 relates to Indigenous legal institutes. So the first thing in call to action 27 and 28 is that it calls for mandatory Indigenous and Aboriginal law courses. There's some debate or discussion more so about whether that needs to be a single course or multiple courses. And although it's framed as one mandatory course, the understanding of the TRC's calls to action here is that the content can be delivered in any way, so long as it is delivered throughout a law student's educational experience. So the topics related to Aboriginal and Indigenous law um, include the history of residential schools, the history and legacy of residential schools, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, Indigenous law, and Aboriginal Crown relations. And inside of some of those definitions, we see references to treaty and Aboriginal rights, for example. And I would say that that is embedded within our understanding of Aboriginal Crown relations, but the TRC does spell out in a little bit more detail those specific content. And then the other element, aside from what we could call um, 
what is usually the matter of curriculum or is also a call for skills-based training in intercultural competency, conflict resolution, human rights, and anti-racism. So some of the questions that come up with call to action 27 and 28 is, where should this be located within a law student's three years of law school? The skills-based training as well, um, there is a question as to whether that should be integrated in courses alongside this material or taught separately and how it could be actually achieved. In order to understand calls to action 27 and 28, it's necessary to look at the underlying context with what the TRC is addressing. And that was the um, inability for counsel and the courts to understand the experiences of residential school survivors and the re-traumatization of those residential school survivors that came about as a result of the lack of training and education that those counsel um, had. And one of the things that we can immediately note is recently the Gottfriedson um, class action, which related to collective harms to First Nations was settled by the government of Canada. The Gottfriedson class action responded to the fact that in the residential schools litigation and settlement process, council argued and took the position that collective harms to Indigenous peoples were not cognizable in Canadian tort law, the loss of language and collective harms. And we have to know that at the time that the litigation was proceeding and the settlement was being negotiated, the interpretation of remediable harms in tort law, specifically um, emotional harms and mental health, was not at the state that it is today after Moorhead and Sadati and some other cases. So the issue is both an aspect of the limitation of the doctrine, but also for counsel to understand the experiences of residential school survivors and translate that into the development or pushing of the common law doctrine related to compensable harms in tort law. So if you read the call to, um, the TRC's executive summary on call to action 27 and 28, you see that it is very much responsive to the lack of education or training that some council may have had in the experiences that survivors had as a result of that, the re-traumatization in the process. And this goes beyond just the context of the residential schools um, litigation and negotiation and is a common experience for Indigenous persons and peoples in their litigation and negotiation with the Crown. Call to Action 50 calls for the establishment of Indigenous law institutes for the development, use and understanding of Indigenous laws and access to justice in accordance with the unique cultures of Aboriginal peoples in Canada. So Call to Action 50 is another type of call that relates to what we're seeing develop at the University of Victoria, the Wakodwin Lodge at the University of Alberta, um, the Indigenous Law Centre at the University of Saskatchewan, the development of Indigenous legal institutes for the revitalization of Indigenous laws and for the practical application of those in communities for healing, restoration, governance, decision-making. Why do we have um, a requirement or a duty to learn about Indigenous legal education? And you'll note that I'm framing this question higher than just learning about Indigenous legal orders. So Justice Lance Finch in um, a professional development course 
for the um, BC uh, for BC um, lawyers in 2012 talked about there being a duty to learn. And a few year, years later, um, Chief Justice Robert Bowman at the Canadian Institute for the Administration of Justice, I think this was in 2022, um, he, uh, in Saskatoon, I think it was held. I can't remember where that CIAJ conference was held. It might have been Vancouver. Um, extended that duty to learn to a duty to act. So if we look at it, what, why is there a duty to learn about Indigenous law or Indigenous legal education more broadly? The first is that there's a constitutional requirement to consider the Indigenous perspective. And the Indigenous perspective includes Indigenous legal orders. There is some controversy or debate as to whether the courts actually consider Indigenous legal orders on their own terms or not. And there's some work uh, that's being developed this, on this in judicial philosophy. Uh, Justice uh, Sebastian Grimond has recently written an article in 2022 about recognizing Indigenous legal orders through the custom, um, customary law provision in the Indian Act. The second aspect is that there's a statutory requirement to consider the Indigenous perspective. So, for example, for Gladue sentencing provisions, that's one area in which the Indigenous perspective is necessary to be understood in order to apply those statutory provisions. Other examples include, I would argue, um, the provisions under the Impact Assessment Act that relate to harms um, to Indigenous people's cultural heritage, for example, which is now statutorily required. And we can also say that there's a professional requirement to consider the Indigenous perspective. This is being developed more from um, the position of the interpretation of the professional regulations of law societies, but there is some work by scholars such as Pooja Parmar, the late Justice Lance Finch, and others who argue about there being um, a professional requirement to consider the Indigenous perspective. And we're seeing initiatives in law societies towards this. For example, the Advocate Society has an original guide, uh, the first guide, um, about working with Indigenous clients communities, and they recently released the supplement to that guide. And that guide and the supplement was created with the Indigenous Bar Association. The Aboriginal Legal Services in Toronto has a guide for culturally competent lawyering in Indigenous practice contexts. Um, Golden Eagle Rising has a, a trauma-informed lawyering guide for persons working in an Indigenous practice context. So we're starting to see the development of more of these types of initiatives. And the Canadian Bar Association has developed its own cultural competency training program called The Path, um, which is now available for lawyers to take. And there are also similar initiatives in British Columbia and in other provinces based on Indigenous cultural competency frameworks. The important thing to note here is that Indigenous law is present, it's being applied, and it governs the terms of Canada's lawful occupation. So Indigenous law is also important to understand because treaties provide the legal basis for Canadians' occupation of Indigenous peoples' territories. In order to understand treaties where they are present, one has to consider the Indigenous perspective. So at a much higher level, it is a foundational component um, to understanding the auth legal authorization of Canadian settlement in Indigenous peoples' territories. And others argue that Indigenous law is part of the rule of law in Canada as a multi-juridical space. So that is also present. 
So how do we go about applying or integrating Indigenous legal education in Canadian law schools? The first area we can think about is curriculum. So we might talk about um, mandatory courses. So for example, what the TRC noted in its specific content, mandatory courses can be just in Aboriginal law or Indigenous law or both. And there are unique pedagogical considerations to doing a combined Indigenous and Aboriginal law course. There's also the possibility of doing elective courses. So elective courses could, could be in Aboriginal law, for example. You might make a mandatory course in Indigenous law and have an elective course in Aboriginal law. There can be a bunch of different permutations of elective courses on Indigenous legal theory and practice, a specific Indigenous legal order, a rooted constitutionalism, um, about uh, state, Indigenous people's relationship to the state, looking at um, uh, and, um, um, resource uh, extraction and Indigenous uh, resistance and governance. There's so many different elective courses that you can look at in the curriculum side. You can also talk about integrated courses. And this will be something that I'm going to talk about much more in this presentation, where we start to integrate Indigenous legal issues, perspectives, and laws in the core curriculum in law school. So torts, contracts, environmental law, criminal law, family law. We can also be thinking about, from a curriculum side, an Indigenous Juris Doctor or a specialization in Indigenous law that would either recognize a basket of these courses taken together as a specialization or the creation of an entirely different um, uh, doctoral uh, Juris Doctor degree. And so that, for example, is what is happening at the University of Victoria. On the side of pedagogy, we can think about um, critical Indigenous legal theory, such as that set out by Tracy Lindbergh, legal pluralism and hybrid, hybridity, here um, speaking to the work of John Burroughs, rooted constitutionalisms in the dissertation and, and chapters of Aaron Mills, and Indigenous pedagogies and methodologies outside of the Indigenous law context, but that are still relevant from a pedagogical point of view for teaching. For example, Linda Tuara Smith's work, um, Wilson, and also Tuck's work. We can also be thinking about programming, and programming goes beyond the curriculum itself. We can think about Indigenous law camps, placements, field studies, the Kwashkamon Aboriginal Law Moot, preparatory programming for Indigenous law students, Indigenous legal clinics, Indigenous cultural competency training like at the University of British Columbia, speaker series like this one. And on the research side, we can think about um, needs for funding for community-based research, as well as law reviews and collections that focus on Indigenous law or Aboriginal law or the integration of Indigenous legal education. One of the things I want to briefly mention about the research side from a law professor's side, which we'll talk about in a minute in more depth uh, at the end of this presentation, is um, institutions need to have a greater appreciation for how service research and teaching is actually carried out in Indigenous legal education for Indigenous law professors. The typical model of research publications does not fit very well on research in Indigenous community contexts because the results of your research might not actually translate into a peer-reviewed publication. It might be a community publication that is not shared any more broadly than within the community itself. And since a community has the, um, the agency and the autonomy as to whether that 
research is released for public viewing. It might be that uh, an Indigenous researcher um, doing Indigenous community research um, might not get permission to actually um, submit that research for peer-reviewed publication in a journal. In addition, um, funding requirements to do this are often more labor intensive on the Indigenous community researcher side. So the SHRC and REB guidelines for doing Indigenous community research often require more documentation, more justifications, more relationship building in order to even begin to apply for that researcher grant funding. And that grant or research isn't necessarily, you know, guaranteed from all that work that's being done by the Indigenous scholar. So there are higher demands on Indigenous researchers to do Indigenous community research, and law schools need to um, properly weigh, evaluate, and understand that when they're doing um, advancement for that Indigenous professor. And I can talk more about that and take questions on that, which I think is very important. There are other ways we can think about um, you know, Indigenous legal education more broadly. For facility side, we can think about Indigenous artwork and objects, green spaces, medicine and outdoor accessibility, smudging and ceremony, feasting and kitchen spaces. For students, we need to have a conversation about the hiring. For students, faculty and staff, we need to have a conversation about hiring, retention and advancement, and the advancement of both Indigenous faculty and staff and students, the availability of funding and, um, and leave for continuing professional development for Indigenous legal training, course releases for Indigenous faculty service, research and teaching, teaching obligations, mental health, elder and community support services for Indigenous students, which Harold Johnson in his book, Peace and Good Order calls life support, which is often not provided, and support for Indigenous language learning. On the relationship side, we need to be considering elders and residents, professional relationships, and secondary and post-secondary pathways. From an institutional point of view, we need to be considering the vertical integration of these commitments. So that means through um, TRC commitments passed by faculty councils, decolonization plans, and the establishment of Indigenous legal education committees in order to do this work. And I will talk more about the structure of our committee um, at TMU. Territorial acknowledgements and general funding for Indigenous legal education activities as well as anti-Indigenous racism policies. So I wanna start us off by talking about mandatory courses in Aboriginal law and Indigenous law, and I'll talk about the structure of my course um, at uh, TMU, at Lassell. So I look at, um, in the first part of the course, I focus on Aboriginal law under section 35 and 9124. So my focus on the beginning of the course is setting up the context for under, understanding the history of Indigenous peoples and settler colonialism in Canada. And then I move into Aboriginal rights in one week, Aboriginal title in another week, then the duty to consult and accommodate, and then treaties. And the reason I do that is because um, there is a specific assignment that we have to do in the integrated practice curriculum for our students. So it structures the delivery of my course in some way. But I would probably do section 35 anyway as at the front end of my course, um, just simply as a, a kind of an orienting way to talk about Canadian Aboriginal law. The second part of the course focuses on Indigenous law and governance. And I've been developing, I've been revising that 
on the basis of what's been happening around the recent reference to the Supreme Court of Canada on an act respecting First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children, youth, and family, where the Supreme Court of Canada is going to be considering whether Parliament can, um, through legislation, recognize the inherent right to Indigenous self-governance over a matter of jurisdiction, in this case, um, Indigenous child welfare. So that is going to be a really important case. And that has, and that and Justice Grimond's um, judicial philosophy and uh, reasoning uh, on under the interpretation of custom under the Indian Act has started to shift my understanding and way of framing Indigenous law and governance in the second part of the course. And in previous years before this, I'd focused more on self-government agreements and treaties and the possibility of either um, judicial recognition of Indigenous self-governance and Indigenous law through the Indian Act or through Parliament's use of statutes to recognize uh, inherent self-governance without a self-government agreement that are they're fairly profound changes for the landscape of talking about, in, in my understanding so far, of talking about Indigenous law and governance. So as I mentioned, part of the reason why my course is structured the way it is is because the students are required as part of the integrated practice curriculum to do a negotiation scenario. So they have to do a negotiation and they also have to do legal research. So I create a multi-party negotiation scenario, a fact pattern based around a duty to consult and accommodate problem. The research memo is due in week six, so all the content has to be taught so that the students can do the duty to consult and accommodate memo by week six. The legal research memo evaluates students' understanding of the DTCA and their ability to do legal research. And then after they submit the memo, they get client releases to them, uh, directions on how to proceed in the negotiation, and these are confidential client releases. So different students' parties know different things about what's going on. So the facts are changing on the ground and then they create a negotiation brief, um, which I've structured based off of Osgood's negotiation class. And at the end of the course, they do a negotiation circle. The uh, assignment is effectively a version of Kwashkamon, the Kwashkamon Aboriginal Law Moot, delivered through a mandatory first year class. And so, that's also the framing of the pedagogy for these assignments. The most, most of the time, the students hate it to start, then they love it by the end. Um, it's, a, it's a lot of work. Uh, they're overwhelmed by the uh, multi-party negotiation scenario, but by the end of it, they take a lot from that experience of actually being able to work with this, these pro- kind of problems and the political and social dimensions of these problems rather than just simply learning them through case law with focus on the doctrinal development and theory of the section 35 jurisprudence. I also offer a seminar on indigenous legal theory and practice. This seminar is informed by my experience thinking about indigenous law in practice in litigation and also in their reception by appellate level decision makers. Um, And I'm thinking here, about the Supreme Court of Canada. So the first part of the course focuses on the um, the delay of methodologies and theories in Indigenous legal theory and practice. So I look at the Indigenous Law Research Unit's case briefing methodology um, at the University of Victoria, critical Indigenous legal theory, all these kinds of theories and methodologies should be familiar to you or there's the authors that are there. 
And I distinguish between theories, which are kind of like the theories about how Indigenous law and Canadian law should relate to one another, if at all, and the methods or methodologies, sorry, methodologies, the ontological, epistemological, and cosmological assumptions that those scholars, researchers, lawyers, judges take when they engage with Indigenous legal traditions. And there are specific methods for engaging with Indigenous legal traditions, and those methods reflect the ontological, cosmological, or um, epistemological assumptions of that particular methodology in theory. The second part of the course shifts to the practical application of this, looking at how Indigenous laws are predominantly used as evidence in litigation. So this is the work of um, Daly, Ray, Miller, and Foster. So I bring students through that um, literature and we talk about, you know, using experts for bringing this evidence. So historians, anthropologists, archaeologists, as well as experts that are elders uh, for bringing Indigenous laws. And we talk about how the court is oriented to a specific understanding of Indigenous law as history and as evidence. The course then kind of starts to look at how do communities develop their legal consciousness about Indigenous law. And we look specifically at a case study of the Mohawks of Ganawage and their membership laws from 1800s to today. And we um, show the different um, points of view of Chief Skydeer and Wani Corn Miller in the case of Wani Corn Miller versus Ganawage uh, involving the Ganawage membership uh, laws. We then start to look at judicial philosophies on the integration, recognition, or delegation of Indigenous law and jurisdiction. And then the course ends with a discussion of ethics and professional responsibilities. One of the initiatives that I've been um, really focused on at LASL as a new school has been on integrating Indigenous legal education. And I think this is probably where the practical part of this course, for those who don't teach Indigenous and Aboriginal law, where they teach tort law, contract law, environmental law, criminal law, family law, this is probably the part where you're gonna have the most interest in this material. So my approach uh, is based off of a theory called settler harm reduction. So this was a term uh, used by um, Tuck and Yang. And the idea is that um, as a methodology, the, the focus is on reducing the harm caused by settler colonialism to indigenous persons, peoples, and indigenous ways of being. And so the goal here isn't decolonization, it's kind of more like a band-aid or a stepping stone is another way to put it. So it's not a decolonial approach. It assumes the status quo that we're here to stay in much the same way. It assumes that non-indigenous educators and students are engaged. That's why it's called settler harm reduction. And it assumes that these people are engaged with different normative commitments and starting points. So why I think that the settler harm reduction approach is helpful is because um, a number of non-Indigenous persons are at different stages in their learning about Indigenous peoples and Indigenous law and have different levels of familiarity, comfort, and experiences of resistance to those ideas. And so the focus on a settler harm reduction approach is to pay, take people where they're at and to work on reducing um, instances of harm by providing them information and guiding them through their personal development on that process. 
so that informs how I understand Indigenous legal education. And you'll see that this uh, framework in Indigenous legal education that I'm proposing is, um, it appears linear. It has a linearity to it. And it also kind of works in a stepping kind of fashion. So we start with Indigenous legal issues, which are Canadian legal issues that impact Indigenous persons, Indigenous communities, and Indigenous territories. And these include the over-incarceration of Indigenous peoples in criminal law, class actions or mediable harms in tort law, matrimonial property on reserve and family law, um, environmental harms um, and in tort law, for example. The idea here is that non-Indigenous educators and students, this will be their entry point to thinking about Indigenous legal education. Speaking from their own uh, knowledge or expertise in a, in a particular doctrinal area of law, like criminal law, tort law, environmental law, allows them to kind of access some of these experiences a little bit more easily to understand these legal issues within their dominant framework. That said, the approach that I take to Indigenous legal issues is one that's informed by the critical legal studies tradition and critical race theory. So there's always a critical element to talk about power dynamics and choice in the development of a legal doctrine within Canadian law. The second uh, step or area is Indigenous legal perspectives. And here we're starting to look at Indigenous people's perspectives on law, which is either their perspectives on Canadian law or Indigenous law. And so this can include Indigenous legal scholars, which I've listed here, but also can include Indigenous persons and communities themselves and their writings. So um, Harold Johnson, um, um, Lee Miracle, um, Art Manuel, these types of individuals would be uh, very much, um, uh, Joseph Gosnell, all these individuals would be very well suited to talking about Indigenous legal perspectives on either Canadian law or Indigenous law. This is, I believe, where we start to engage with the possibility of understanding law from an intersocietal perspective and begin to engage with some of the more thorny and difficult questions about the interaction between Indigenous law and Canadian law, if at all. And the third part, which I think is um, the focus of the uh, Indigenous Law Research Unit at the University of Victoria, for example, is on teaching Indigenous legal orders themselves which is Indigenous people's own laws taught within their own epistemological, ontological, and cosmological commitments and categories. And so as, as a kind of um, stepping process, these overlap in a lot of important ways, um, but they are there is an aspect of linearity to it. And the linearity is informed by my commitment to the methodology of settler harm reduction, which assumes that in non-Indigenous educators and students are at different stages in their, their learning and their acceptance of things such as Indigenous legal orders, Indigenous legal presence, and decolonization. To give you an example of applying this uh, approach to tort law, so for Indigenous legal issues, we can talk about environmental torts. So here's the work of Collins and Clement, Clement on trap lines and tort law, um, Collins at the University of Ottawa, um, Robert uh, Yelkat Clifford, uh, I think he's at the University of Victoria. We can talk about private nuisance actions like the recent Thomas and Sykes First Nations case, which recognized that a First Nation that has um, proven Aboriginal rights can bring a claim, uh, private nuisance action against a government. However, in that case, um, 
the uh, the Crown had acted according to its statutory authority. So um, there was a defense to that private nuisance action, but it does open up interesting ways to talk about um, tort law. So private nuisance actions and statutory immunities. We can also talk about anti-Indigenous racism and stereotyping and more broadly uh, racism and stereotyping in our understanding of uh, actions related to negligence as well as uh, intentional torts like assault and battery, particularly assault where it's an apprehension of threat in somebody's mind. So there's the example of um, Hill and Hamilton Wentworth to open up that discussion as well as the recent experience of Maxwell and Torian Johnson of the HealthSec First Nation. And uh, in that case, also um, the Hiltzak Nation's refusal to accept the apology of the Vancouver Police Department um, using their own Indigenous legal practices. As we start to engage with these legal issues within tort law, obviously we start to open up looking at Indigenous legal perspectives. And we can also look at class actions, including issues related to standing. And I mentioned the residential schools class action. When um, tort law classes look at integrating Indigenous legal issues, it's usually class actions that is going to be the focus or environmental torts that's going to be the focus. But I think there's more than just that that's available to look at for integrating Indigenous law and perspectives in a tort law course. Oops. And we can talk about Indigenous legal perspectives like Yelkat Clifford's on tort actions related to environmental impacts on Indigenous persons, peoples, and spirited beings, Friedland on the Cree reasonable person, and Nehayak perspectives on harm, such as Friedland's Wetigo principles and McAdams' nationhood interrupted. And we can also talk about Indigenous legal orders and how those legal orders would respond to harms. Now, what's interesting about bringing in Indigenous law into tort law is that I think for my own commitments, speaking from somebody who grew up in Northern Saskatchewan around um, uh, Nehiao, uh legal thought and practice, um, McAdam's work on this has really um, impacted my thinking about tort law more broadly is about uh, harms between individuals. And I appreciate the non-criminal context of tort law for remedying harms between individuals. And so for me, when I'm thinking about Indigenous legal orders in a tort law class, I'm thinking about that as an area of interaction, as, um, as how close for me and in my interpretation uh, tort law is to legal categories that I'm more familiar with within Nehao law. And that uh, McAdam talks about in Nationhood Interrupted. So as a person goes through, as an educator goes through integrating these issues, um, their own positionality is going to be important and how, what they focus on, how they understand it, how they interpret it. Um, but I do see some potentials for integration through this particular model in specific courses in the first year curriculum. How I've done this at uh, Lincoln Alexander is uh, about a three-step process. So I uh, solicit interest from faculty members. It's only for faculty members that have an interest in ind integrating Indigenous legal issues. I send a survey. What I'm trying to find out is, are they familiar? How, how familiar are they in uh, their area with these types of issues? And what's their motivation for doing this work? What do they want to achieve? I think individual agency is very important. And um, recognizing the position and tailoring it to the position of the individual educator is also very important. 
there are, and I've heard anecdotally and I've talked to people about this, there's experiences about, well, I don't feel prepared to learn about Indigenous law. I don't know anything about this. There's a pre-existing assumption that if they're going to integrate Indigenous legal issues, it's going to be on Section 35. So somebody that teaches property law is going to be like, oh, then I'm going to have to teach Dugamook. Actually, you could be talking about many different things in a property law course. You could be talking about um, ancestral remains and um, property property laws that relates to our understanding of uh, human remains, which is a very controversial conversation to have in a property law course, but might be in line with what um, a professor wants to do in that course. So by understanding what an individual professor's own uh, pedagogical and doctrinal interests are, that gives them that way into talking about Indigenous legal education. It provides the motivation as well as the starting point for them coming in. So the purpose of these kinds of discussions one-on-one with faculty faculty members is to brainstorm what types of Indigenous legal issues, perspectives, and laws might fit well with their current pedagogical commitments and understanding. Of course, there's the relational aspect of moving forward over time and learning more, but it's hard to for an educator to teach at a level, at a stage that they're just simply not at. And as you'll all know, the course prep that we can do is often quite limited by our time focused on service and on research. So we do become, as educators, um, quite focused on getting through our own briefing and understanding of the material as quickly as possible. So starting from a basis of understanding, it it provides that more comfortable space for an educator to start to integrate Indigenous legal issues, perspectives, and laws. After we've brainstormed, we recommend cases and materials and resources to a faculty member. Those might be key orienting articles, one, two, or three of them, a couple of court cases. We might assign to the research assistant to provide a little bit more research, maybe some summaries to that faculty member, anything to help them be able to incorporate that into their course. And it's very much led by the interests and motivations of that specific faculty member. And then at the end, the faculty member uses their discretion to implement that into their course however they like. The course materials are then updated or reported in an open database run through Zotero. So I'm going to actually show this to you so that you can see how this works. So you should see a database on your screen. Yeah. So um, with this database, this is the Zotero uh, database. It has been organized by uh, course code at our law school. So 1L courses, 2L and 3L courses. If we look at a course, say for example, property law, we'll see a variety of different um, uh, articles about property law. This does seem relatively like disorganized in that it's got just a lot of different articles that are in it, but there are tags that are associated with this. Sorry, just one moment. Can you still see it? Uh, Did it, up? it disappeared. Oh, it disappeared. Okay. I'm going to stop that share. Well, I'll describe it for here. At least you've seen it. 
So the idea behind, um, there we go. The database is that so Tarot allows for tags. So we tag according to course code, contributor and subject. And then it allows for the inclusion of abstracts and PDFs when it's not publicly, when the database isn't public, but is privately within the institution, it allows for PDFs and annotations to be added to those documents. So I can um, provide uh, summaries that I've already written about an article, which has been helpful for a number of professors who just take my summary and give it to the students as a, as like a in-class reading. Um, and it allows for attribution of resources. And you can also use tags and course codes in ways to um, isolate particular issues. So if you're interested in, um, if you're looking at property law and you're interested in Aboriginal title, you can go to the tag for Aboriginal title and sort those entries by Aboriginal title entries to find those articles that are related to that topic. So right now I'm in the process of kind of, in the summer I'll be revising the database um, and cleaning it up a bit and then hopefully moving towards a publicly accessible uh, version of that because um, Zotero has a really interesting backend for being able to merge into websites. And a second product relates to this, which is a handbook on integrating Indigenous legal education, which is similarly organized by subject and uses the resources that are in the Zotero database to organize um, in the same fashion that I described Indigenous legal issues, perspectives, and laws. So it's an explanatory of in constitutional law, for example, here are some of the legal issues that you might want to look at, like section 15 um, and section 15.2 for ameliorative programming. And you might want to look at the case of CAP and Cunningham. And these cases open up discussions about Indigenous membership and ameliorative programming for uh, First Nations people. And, um, and so you can do a discussion about 15.2 in constitutional law. So you're not limited to just talking about in constitutional law, section 91.24 or section 35. And you can then have the handbook will talk about Indigenous perspectives on uh, Indigenous constitutions and the Canadian constitution. And the third section might be in that handbook on constitutional law, a brief description of Aaron Mills's uh, theory of Indigenous rooted constitutionalisms or um, um, M.A. Kraft's um, uh, Chinibi and Nakanagewin laws, so um, Anishinaabe water laws. We also are developing surveys to assess progress on integrating Indigenous legal education. Um, and I can answer more questions about that if you're interested. Um, and I imagine, Lindsay, the slides will be shared with anyone present um, I'm open to them being shared. There's no restrictions on that. Great. And a more detailed survey as well. Now, when we're thinking about procedures for integrating Indigenous legal education, one of the um, strongest arguments against it is academic freedom. Uh, Karen Drake has an article on this. I'm trying to remember the name of it. I think it was probably about from 2015. And she addresses the argument about academic freedom. Um, generally, she points out that there is no unmediated, unlimited uh, notion of academic freedom. There are always limitations on what we can teach, either set out by the Federation of Law Societies um, 
or by our own institutions. For example, I teach within an um, integrated practice curriculum. So I'm quite limited in how I can teach structurally by the requirements that I have to satisfy for the integrated practice curriculum. But this particular proposal I have, because it focuses on um, educator uh, agency and motivation, it shouldn't offend academic freedom because at the end of the day, the educator is the one that has the discretion as to whether they do something or not. We need to, and we, when we're doing surveys about integrating Indigenous legal education, we need to make sure that we're protecting and ensuring the equitable assessment of racialized Indigenous and women faculty members. In general, my main point is there's a concern that surveys about how well a professor integrates Indigenous law in a course might be used against them in their tenure and advancement. And particularly as it relates to racialized Indigenous and women faculty members, that's a concern. We need to think about in the evaluation of integrating Indigenous legal education issues related to social desire, desirability bias. So if we do a survey that's um, surveys of students' experiences in a course, there's less likelihood that a faculty member, so like if we did a survey where a faculty member reported on how well they were doing in integrating Indigenous law, they have a bias, a self-reporting bias uh, about how they report that. Whereas with a student-based survey, that bias is removed. Of course, we do introduce the problems that I just talked about before, which is student reporting that obviously um, can have racialized or gender bias uh, underlying it. So now I wanna talk a little bit about um, the Indigenous Legal Education Committee. And I know I've went through a lot of stuff, so hopefully I'll have lots of questions and I'm hoping to end this presentation in about 10, 12 minutes so that we can have an opportunity for questions. So in vertical integration, as I mentioned, like that, what we've just been talking about has been a lot about um, pedagogy and curriculum. Now we can talk about institutional changes, about um, vertical integration of the TRC's calls. And one way we can do that is by establishing a faculty committee that we could call an Indigenous Legal Education Committee, a Reconciliation Committee, whatever you uh, your institution wants to call it. I do think that there are implications to what you call your your committees. Um, there is a meaningful difference in how you name them. And this is one choice that we've done at Lincoln Alexander. So we have a, a faculty Indigenous Legal Education Committee, which is uh, responsible for coordinating the implementation of the education service and research commitments of the law school. And the matters that it covers relates to TRC, but beyond it. Um, it covers basically everything I've listed out in all those uh, lists related to uh, facilities and programming, all of that gets covered in that. The idea behind it is that it provides advice to the other committees or to the admin that deal with that. So this allows for a committee to be uh, an institutional knowledge base for that institutional knowledge to transfer over time and also to include non-Indigenous faculty members and Indigenous faculty members in that process. So the committee takes on more of a, an organizing, uh, advising kind of role, but also understood within the broader faculty organizational structure as a place of expertise and consideration on those issues, allowing for the committees that are um, addressed to admissions, for example, 
to focus on um, their uh, the core of what they already have knowledge about, and then to receive advice from a committee that has time to actually study the indigenous uh, legal the indigenous uh, element of that in more depth. The uh, ILEC reports to the faculty council, as many uh, committees do. They provide annual reports, assist the dean with the preparation of the annual report to the Canadian Council of Law Deans, and can create subcommittees to study other issues. In our case, the membership of our ILEC has a committee chair, uh, which is myself in this year, a recording secretary, three RFA, so now that would be uh, TFA, um, so RFA was from the last, uh, before, our law, before our university changed its name, representatives, one Indigenous Juris Doctor or graduate student uh, appointed by the Indigenous Law Association student, and one student appointed annually from the students enrolled in the JD or graduate program. So that allows for um, up to two Indigenous law students, but at the very least one. And we also have, uh, it, when, when we'll hire this position, a manager of Indigenous Legal Education Reconciliation Initiatives, which would be the admin member responsible for things like facilities and things like that. It was a conscious choice for us to include students uh, in this, as well as to include admin, recognizing that the types of activities that this specific committee would do would go beyond just faculty, curriculum, and programming type issues. And I think it's also reflective of the fact that at Lincoln Alexander, we have the integrated practice curriculum and we rely quite heavily on a lot of the admin uh, to deal with things like placements and intensives and clinics. And finally, I wanna end, uh, well, not quite, I've got two more slides. So before we end, I wanna talk about some of the issues related to indigenous faculty recruitment, hiring and advancement. Earlier, I talked about um, the unique aspects of Indigenous community research and how that can go unrecognized or not properly evaluated in uh, tenure evaluation and the difficulties of um, the additional funding requirements for Indigenous community research. And here I want to talk about some of the stuff I've been doing um, to advocate for Indigenous faculty recruitment, hiring, retention, and advancement a bit more. I think at the institutional level, we need to be thinking about equitable and specific compensation for Indigenous scholars with or without the completion of a terminal degree. So it is a reality that many law schools are looking for Indigenous uh, legal educators to come in. And one of the things that I've noticed is that there's often, um, it'll say for a contract or uh, that it's non-tenure stream, for example, and even if it's tenure stream, there are kind of challenges related to this. I think in general, we need to be looking at compensation that recognizes the uh, special expertise as well as the institutional demands that are placed on Indigenous faculty members. And I say with or without a terminal degree because um, law schools are hiring uh, Indigenous uh, assistant professors who have not completed their terminal degree, which is, I think, generally an exception to hiring practices, which prefer the completion of a terminal degree and often a PhD. And so there needs to be greater support for uh, Indigenous assistant professors who are in the process of completing their terminal degree. 
or who are completing a PhD in addition to their terminal degree, which would have been an LLM. This was a similar, so the next point here, it's a similar issue as in legal practice. It's that law firms and law schools need to provide funding and leave and however institutionally they manage that so that indigenous assistant professors and associate professors can continue to receive indigenous law and language training either in their home community or in a host community. If the reason why Indigenous assistant professors are being hired is to teach Indigenous law, and if law schools are actually committed to that, they need to understand that there's specific funding and resource demands on Indigenous assistant professors and requirements for them to receive that education in appropriate contexts for them to be able to fulfill those goals. That is, if the institution values this, they need to actually support the professors in doing this. Course releases for Indigenous specific service, which can be formal and informal, need to also be considered. I just described a lot of the service related stuff that I do that goes outside of my own teaching research. Um, and many Indigenous assistant professors are in a similar place you know, with their commitments to law schools and more broadly to the university that they're at, as well as to their host communities or their home communities. And so course specific releases um, provide a little bit of alleviation there. The other possibility of course releases aren't um, available or if the indigenous professor doesn't prefer them, uh, an understanding for tenure and advancement that their indigenous researcher, that their research is going to be weighed a little differently, that their research output and peer reviewed publications isn't gonna be as highly weighed as it would be for another assistant professor who's not in that field. And this isn't any kind of ameliorative action or special programming. This reflects the fact uh, that Indigenous teaching, service, and research is holistic, and that these are the priorities of law schools and the commitments that they've made. And so since they've made these commitments, they need to uh, also commit to advancing Indigenous professors uh, understanding the things that they've committed themselves to. And more broadly, we can talk about um, uh, procedures related to confirming Indigenous identity. There's a conference coming up at the University of Regina pretty soon, <clears throat> and that's a continuing issue. And happy to answer any questions on that if that arises. Now, to conclude for us, I want to talk about what I see as some of the risks. So. There are these risks to Indigenous legal education and Indigenous legal orders that others have talked about, distortion, severance, and commensurability, romanticization, absencing. A lot has been talked about that. But I also want to talk about racism and prejudice and the perception of threat as being additional barriers. The argument here is that um, settler colonialism as an ideology and a structure and a practice is about the preferential allocation of resources from indigenous peoples, persons in their territories to settler, the settler colonial state and to individuals who are settlers. Um, and one of the um, implications of this is that indigenous legal orders and indigenous peoples in some cases are perceived as a threat to this allocation of resources. And the argument here is that that predicts or is related to opposition um, to Indigenous legal education, but also at a you know, structural level, it is correlated with uh, or could be related to uh, Indigenous people's experiences of racism within any field 
whether that's criminal justice, education, etc. So my argument here is that the how of Indigenous legal education is not just about the theory and practice of it, but also about interpersonal relationships, particularly that between Indigenous persons and non-Indigenous persons. And that we need to see how opposition to Indigenous legal education can be based on the threat, the perceived threat uh, of the prioritization of resources to settlers and settler society. So, for example, in, an, um, in a course in contract law, a student might say, you know, why am I learning about impact benefit agreements? Why am I learning about Indigenous governance and laws related to contracting? I'm not going to be doing this in practice. How am I going to get a job that's going to pay me money in order to pay my law student bill? A lot of that is based off of a pre-existing structure of the prioritization of settler colonial law and neoliberal markets around legal services. And so it is, the student does experience um, uh, an opposition to Indigenous legal education. And, and I would argue that the way that students articulate that is as a threat to their material uh, security. That's certainly how I've heard students um, uh, describe opposition to Indigenous legal education uh, in my time in law school and much afterwards. So to kind of pull it all together, the, the methodology and theory I'm working from in settler harm reduction is about reducing the effects of anti-Indigenous racism and settler colonialism alongside our motivation or our desire to implement the calls to action in law schools. It's a response to what I've identified as what I believe it, uh, is the root of the barrier to Indigenous legal education and to Indigenous laws more broadly, which is the way that those laws and Indigenous governments threatens the prioritization or allocation of resources in settler colonial society. So that's the end of the presentation. Um, I'm gonna stop sharing here and I'm happy to talk about any part of it, kind of bit of a whirlwind tour of a bunch of different things, but there's kind of practical institutional applications, pedagogy applications that you might be interested in. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, that was so many different possible invitations for each of us coming from different positions as faculty teaching various courses, as students, as administrators and how we can be picking up on some of these threads. So thank you for putting that together and we'll open up for questions um, or comments and I will also monitor the Q&A bar for the online participants too. Yeah, I see I've got something from Jason. Hi, Jason. Yes. Um, I'm taking some time to read this too. Okay, maybe uh, I can read it out loud to give you a break from speaking, sure. have a water or something. Okay, so uh, Jason writes, the doctrine of discovery was an instrumental policy in the attempted decimation and invalidation of indigenous governments and legal systems. Canada's implementing the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act legally nullifies the doctrine of discovery and the concept of terra nullius, meaning empty lands. What might this mean with respect to Indigenous sovereignty, never surrendered even by treaty, decolonization practices, uh, the advancement of renewed relationships between Canada and Indigenous peoples, land use, views on property, and implementation of Indigenous laws and legal institutions? Yeah, so I, I like, Jason, thanks for the question. So 
Um, as Jason points out, Canada's recent uh, UN DREP uh, Act says in its preamble that it repudiates the doctrine of discovery and the doctrine of terra nullius. And in Chilcotin, um, the court said that the doctrine of terra nullius had never applied in Canada. So when we think about what authorizes, what's the legal authorization for settlement or settler colonies in Canada, we think about the international law that the European states used to authorize that. That's their legal order. That's what they're going to use. So the doctrine of discovery and terra nullius were two options, separate, but often worked together to justify or authorize, um, legally authorize the settlement in Indigenous peoples' territories. Conquest was another one, but in Haida, uh, and in Calder, the court told us that Indigenous peoples in Canada had never been conquered either. So Terranolius, Doctrine of Discovery, and Conquest are all not possible legal authorizations in Canada. Another one, Adverse Possession, is also on unstable ground in Canada since Indigenous peoples had always resisted any kind of adverse possession of their territories by settlers. So that leaves uh, treaty as pretty much the only legal authorization that's recognized in Canadian law and international law. Of course, we use sui generis treaties, not, we don't call them international law treaties. Um, that's a determination made by a court at a particular point in time. Um, but treaties provide the only other basis that well, we can theorize for the legal authorization and settlement of, um, of uh, a settler colony. And so I think, um, Jason, your question over here is what does that kind of leave for us, right? I think it does leave what, what you point to, which is an, uh, the need for uh, renewed relationships based on treaties. And you mentioned here, but what does this mean for places never, sur never even surrendered by treaty? I would kind of bracket your use of the word surrendered there, and I'm sure you would also bracket your use of the word surrendered there. Um, but that would effectively mean that in places where treaties are not present, we would be looking at um, entering into treaties. And for where treaties are present, we would want to be renewing them and understanding them within the context of indigenous legal orders, because that is the legal authorization and basis for settler colonialism. Well, that's the legal basis for, the, for Canada. Uh, I think to be more accurate, it wouldn't be for settler colonialism if we're looking at it from an indigenous treaty context. Thank you. I'll turn to the room next, and then I'll go back to the next online question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, thank you, Professor Price. It's a wonderful presentation and lots and lots of issues, um, many of which we're thinking about at this faculty. Um, one question I have for you relates to the introduction of a mandatory first-year course. I'd be interested in your thoughts on um, what sort of minimum resources, skill sets, knowledge a faculty should have in place to, to make sure it can be rolled out with success. And in your experience, um, thoughts on on what ensures it does roll out with success and, and what may lead to it not. Uh, being a great success or not being well received by students in first year. It touches that. It's connected a little bit to the last point you were making. I'd, I'd really be interested in how you lay the groundwork in a faculty as they're thinking about not just thinking, but actually moving to implement a mandatory first course in, in first year. Thank you. Um, so 
I know that there's others that are starting to do mandatory courses. For example, John Burroughs has, uh, I think it's a first-year course at the University of Toronto that he's doing. First-year courses are a challenge for um, teaching Aboriginal and Indigenous law. So first, one of the questions is, is the course going to be teaching Aboriginal law, Indigenous law, or both? And that's going to be determined by the faculty member and their expertise or knowledge and being able to teach that. And if it's only one of those things, and if we're looking at the TRC's calls to action, which include, which considers both of those things, how are those students going to get that other aspect that's being missed um, by that choice? And it's not any fault of the Indigenous faculty member or the faculty member, uh, because it is very difficult to teach both Aboriginal law and Indigenous law in one course in one term. The... Uh, one of the things that is helpful, that's been helpful in my practice is I work with, I talk to the other professors that are teaching particularly constitutional law and property law. So constitutional law for our students is delivered the same term as I teach Aboriginal law, but property law, we keep switching this. We're new law school. So we keep switching the order of the classes, but it has worked in the past where I I talk to the constitutional law professor so that they're dealing with division of powers issues in interjurisdictional immunity um, and uh, referential incorporation before I get it to it in my class. And I talk to the teacher. So we have a first year admin law course. I talk to the admin law professor to ensure that they've talked about judicial reviews and procedural fairness and substantive fairness before I do the duty to consult and accommodate. So as much as possible, I try to ensure that um, the students already have the doctrine uh, in their other courses that is touched on in Aboriginal law. And that's because the feature of Aboriginal law is that it, it actually covers, so Canadian law related to Aboriginal peoples, it covers a lot of different doctrinal areas. Property law is necessary to be understood so that you can talk about fee simple property and Aboriginal interests in land. Uh, and when you talk about Aboriginal title, and the conversations between Aboriginal title claims and fee simple property rights. In order to talk about um, constitutional law and section 9124, they have to have some basis of understanding the division of powers. And that's even more the case now when we talk about the recent reference to the Supreme Court in Act uh, respecting Indigenous uh, First Nations, Métis, Inuit, Children, Youth and Family, which deals with an inherent right to self-government. So, and in Amin law, the DTCA, so coordinating is really important um, with other professors and can help that. Um, on the student side, students have, uh, it's a very high learning curve to get into talking, even talking about Aboriginal law. They're very keen to learn about Indigenous law in my experience, at least in my, with my students. They really want to learn about that, but they lack the basic terminology to even describe Indigenous peoples and the relationship to the Canadian uh, settler state. And when we talk about Aboriginal law, they also lack, uh, some lack, not all, but there is a need to learn about um, confederation and Canada's legal history, which when we're talking about, when I start the course, I, I rooted in um, Indigenous intersocietal treaties like the Dish With One Spoon, the Gus Wentha, Tua Wampum, start with that. Um, for those students, talking about Sir William Johnson Sr. And, and General Jeffrey Amherst is the first time they've ever thought about, you know, the early uh, experience of 
colonialism in Canada and how uh, France and England's interests in establishing colonies in this territory are relevant to today. And so um, there is a high learning curve for the course. And so there needs to be uh, support for the faculty member that's teaching that. They have to have the expertise. They can coordinate with other professors to do that. And then there also needs to be support for the students, um, whether that's through teaching assistants to help with that, some kind of preparatory programming, an intensive week, something to orient them uh, around that so that it kind of lessens the load on the, the faculty member. And if it's an Indigenous faculty member and you've got course evaluations and you're thinking about the um, retention and advancement of that faculty member, you really need to consider the fact that they're teaching in a context where they might be experiencing hostility from their students and have difficulty teaching that course. And I would say, read um, Professor uh, Lavallee's uh, piece in Mitchell Hamlin Law Review to understand more about what that experience is like. Thank you for the question. It's a great question. And just so you know, that was Professor Rob Yaldin. Oh, you've been signed out because you're... Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Am I still here? Yeah, you're still there. Um, that was Professor Rob Yaldin who put that question to you and he is doing, um, chairing the JD Curriculum Review Committee. So very steeped in these thoughts. Thank you, and Professor. I wanted to ask one follow-up and then I'll pass over to Professor Kerr. But on that, can you just let us know how many professors you have at Lincoln Alexander who are teaching that course? Um, or are you the mandatory course person? So I taught all sections last year, 150 students, um, but usually I teach two sections, so 100 students split into two classes of 50, and another teacher uh, teaches the other 50. At one time, it was a faculty member at our law school, Sari Graben, and this year it's Robert Jaynes from uh, Jaynes, Friedman, Kyle, and Grant Wedge, who's a director for Ontario's negotiation um, uh, uh, in uh, uh, for the Ministry of the Attorney General of Ontario. So we've been really fortunate in getting this year, getting some real, ex like really, really established experts and knowledgeable people to teach this course uh, from the practice context. And that reflects the integrated practice curriculum that we have at the law school. Great. Great, thanks. Yeah, well, thank you so much for that. I learned so much from this presentation and the framework that you laid out really helped me realize how in my criminal law teaching, I have never gone beyond bringing in indigenous legal issues, right? Your, your framework made me realize, oh, I've never gone beyond that. That's all that's ever happened in my classroom. And so it was really illuminating. Um, I was curious as you did your surveys to educators and asked them about their motivations. What are the range? Could you tell us a bit about the range of responses? I just would be so curious to hear what people say about that. And it just might help me articulate my own motivations in this area as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's as diverse as I think the so the folks that are interested in doing this are self-selected in some ways. They do have some motivation or interest. There are some that are more positivistic in their motivation. So they're like, the TRC told me I should, so I'm going to do it because I care. So one motivation comes from uh, wanting to be a part of reconciliation in the context of residential schools. So that's an entry point for that motivation. Some professors have previous knowledge and experience in this. And so they're motivated by 
wanting to develop further their own knowledge and uh, their own knowledge and expertise in the area. Um, and so those two, those two groups are kind of the most common and they, they come from very different starting points. The folks that are kind of interested in it because of the calls to action, um, this is sometimes their first entry into it. And so the types of materials I give them are more introductory uh, compared to those who have a pre-existing kind of interest in the area and are just trying to deepen it. Yeah. But the, the range of responses are, are massive, right? Like some people connect it to their, their family and their children and what their children are learning in high school or in, in elementary school. And just the number of motivations are incredibly personal and I really love hearing them. So, yeah. Thanks. Uh, we'll go to an online question now. This one's from Constance who is a, a 1L JD student who you met briefly last night over virtual dinner. And she is asking here, how is mandatory Indigenous education being received in the legal field? I asked this in view of the Alberta action to remove the requirement for minimal Indigenous education by the Alberta Law Society. Yeah, that's a funny one. Um, so uh, as you might know, um, a group of the benchers in for... Um, Oh, sorry, lawyers with the Alberta, uh, Alberta Law Society brought a motion to um, to oppose and challenge the authority of the Law Society's requirement of um, an Indigenous legal education training component. And the um, the petitioner motion had was uh, effectively uh, stopped by a vote um, of members of the Law Society. So there was like overwhelming opposition to. Um, those people that opposed this to start, which is kind of heartening and 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 helpful to to hear. Um, but uh, in Ontario, we do see an opposition to uh, any kind of man making mandatory requirements to this, in much the same way that we saw opposition to the statement of principles. And so it is an ongoing, um, you know, public uh, disagreement. Between individuals and the member, uh, between members of the profession, my general sense is that within the profession more broadly and within the regulators, um, as currently is, there isn't a widespread um, motivation to oppose this. I do think that the motivations to move towards Indigenous law or Aboriginal laws as a component of CPDs um, or for cultural competency training will probably lessen over time. We're now, uh, so the TRC's reports 2015, we're at 2023, uh, a number of years have passed. A lot of the, the momentum was in the period between about 2017 to about just around the pandemic. Um, and so we're at a stage, I think, where things are possibly um, solidifying and kind of getting established. But there are these other conversations that are happening in the law societies that I think are connected to other other aspects of opposition um, and fundamental uh, conflicting ideologies within the profession and not just about Indigenous law or Indigenous peoples, but obviously come into play at that point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. Uh, the next question here from online comes from Kendall, who is um, a JD student here. She's taking my class this semester. 
and she's from Hong Kong. She's an exchange student. She says, uh, I'm very interested in the way mandatory Indigenous legal education is implemented at TMU. My question is about grading. I'd like to know your opinion on how these Indigenous law courses should be graded, and if so, oh, how? Oh, if they should be graded, and if so, how? Especially considering the aim of reconciliation and establishing relationship and understanding. Yeah. So I generally agree with um, Professor Mills uh, that we wouldn't be evaluating uh, Indigenous law, knowledge of Indigenous law. There's a variety of different epistemological and pedagogical reasons uh, for that. And the one that's glaring to me is that learning Indigenous law is not the same way as rotely demonstrating knowledge of offer and acceptance. Um, and so it would not really make sense to evaluate within a traditional pedagogy model. But my courses, and when I teach about Indigenous law, I don't necessarily teach about the content of Indigenous law. I usually teach about the philosophies that have been articulated by Indigenous or non-Indigenous scholars about the uh, relationship between the legal orders or the theories and methodologies for revitalizing Indigenous law. And that is completely examinable content. Um, and, uh, and I do examine on it and it's more engaged from an intellectual, uh, state and point of view. And I think it's appropriate, uh, within the context of teaching within a Canadian law school to test that material. That's great. Yeah, Kevin. Uh, so I, I, I also really enjoyed your talk and I'm, I'm just struck by the depth and the, the extended resources that that can be available to people who want to go down this path. Um, and I, so I, I had a couple of follow-up questions thinking about that. Um, one is uh, roughly how much um, person power and time and research, research dollars need to be allocated to create a, an information and support resource like the one you're talking about. Um, another might be if there are challenges integrating what students should learn into the first year curriculum, does it make sense to think about doing a bit in the first year and a bit in the upper years, perhaps both on a mandatory basis? And then maybe lastly, if you were to look at more ambitious models like what they have in Victoria, how much more does that require? Yeah, I think a lot about the resource side. Um, that's a huge part of it. I've been very lucky and to have, uh, I have two uh, research assistants that assist me just on this stuff. They're part-time, 10 hours a week during each, during the law school term. And they assist on not just the integration in curriculum, but all the other types of activities that I do service-wise. So they're great. The, the creation of Indigenous and an Indigenous Legal Education Committee also allows for um, pooling of resources and expertise among uh, professors, some who are non-Indigenous, who then can do work related to that. So that's another way of lightening the workload on an Indigenous professor. And my research assistants also work full-time during the summer for me on other types of, um, on this project as well as facilities and all sorts of things that are happening. Of course, that amount uh, is based on the fact that we're a brand new law school. And so a lot of that clinics, placements, intensives, all those relationships have to be developed uh, from the ground up. And I'm starting to see a need. Um, I'm not seeing the same like level of demand uh, 
for that full amount of full time. So I think that amount can change over time, but certainly the um, resourcing and support has been incredibly helpful in me being able to do what I've done in three years. Um, Splitting or kind of thinking about how the course could be developed in upper years and and first year. I had thought about at times um, having the course run in in two L as a mandatory course um, in much the same way that I took uh, what had been called native law at the time with Andre Boisel, which had been taught by Kent McNeil at Osgood before, where they taught it as a second year uh, course. And at that stage, you know, your legal reasoning as a law student has developed a lot more. Um, your ability to understand like um, policy or politics or society and its interaction with the legal systems developed, you kind of can see behind the curtain a little bit more when judges are making decisions. So there's a little bit more like just Uh, street smarts in a sense that law students pick up after their first year and they also gain better capacities I believe for managing lots of lots of information and sorting it and kind of dealing with that workload a lot better so there are benefits to second to doing it in second year but one of the arguments for doing it in first year is that if you have a course that looks at either aboriginal and or indigenous law it really impresses on law students the fundamental importance of this. And that might be lost. That that impression might be lost if you move it to second year. Might not be, but it might be. Yeah. That's so helpful, Scott. We're um yeah, really impressed and grateful for all the work that you put into this and for sharing with us. And I have access to that Zotero database. Um, Scott has generously shared it with me. So if you have interest in seeing some of those materials from your courses, I'd be happy to be an intermediary until it's public. And um, we just wanted to extend our deep gratitude to you for doing this and for so flexibly uh, jumping to online when the the in-person travel became impossible. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks for inviting me. And thanks for the great questions. I'm really excited to talk about this with all of you.